our breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and welcome to 3CR Breakfast. Today you'll hear conversations on politics, alternative news, community actions and other updates. Female identifying artists aged 18 to 35 are invited to enter the Ellen Jose Art Award, a $15,000 non-acquisitive award. Ellen Jose was a pioneer in Australia's urban indigenous art movement and a radical activist and social justice campaigner. The award is given in the hope that it will support the winning artist's continued development by providing recognition as well as a financial boost. All six finalists will receive an artist fee and have the opportunity for their work to be professionally presented in an exhibition with an accompanying publication. The award is a partnership between the Ellen Jose Memorial Foundation and Bayside City Council. Entries are now open and close on Friday the 27th of August. Head to bayside.vic.gov.au and search for the Ellen Jose Art Award for all the details. A 3CR supporter. Look on your way What can I say You feel ahead You change your way It's time to complete your census. You can do it online, by paper, or with help from us. For more information, visit census.abs.gov.au Authorised by the Australian Bureau of Statistics, Canberra. A 3CR supporter. You're with 3CR Radio this morning on 855am. Or maybe you're listening on the web somewhere at 3cr.org.au or on digital radio at 3CR Digital. Stay with us. This next track is by Emma Donovan and the Putbacks, Yarian Miriji. <laughs>
Donovan and the putbacks there with Yarian Mediji. This lasting delusion about children trapped in tunnels. That's how we got Aussie Q, it seems. And now everything else. I mean, now it's just a six-month pipeline from that to Australians who, who live in this alternate uh, American fantasy land where they post about Donald Trump all the time. So its ability to via Save the Children stuff to get a whole range of different political persuasions in is what I found fascinating, you know. I talk a lot in the Aussie Q videos about how your auntie, she might not be that far right wing now but she might be quite left she might just be a spiritual hippie type but there's this broad appeal to things like save the children and great awakenings there's almost a hippie like quality to it particularly when you tone down the whole MAGA element of, of traditional Q and it's getting people in there but Q is not just a conspiracy theory is it it is a conspiracy theory that is meant to drag you right after a few months so your auntie's going to be talking about make Australia great again in six months if she isn't right now You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. Hi, I'm Amy Goodman. The House of Representatives Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol held its first hearing Tuesday and heard testimony from four police officers who were attacked by Trump supporters while defending the Capitol. The committee is made up of seven Democrats and two Republicans, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger both of whom voted to impeach Trump for his role in instigating the assault on the Capitol. Last week, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy pulled all his recommended committee members, five of them, after House Speaker Nancy Pelosi vetoed two of his picks. U.S. Capitol Police Sergeant Aquilino Gonell spoke first. During the insurrection, he was beaten with a flagpole and attacked with chemical spray. Gonell is a Dominican immigrant who served in the U.S. Army in Iraq. What we were suggested that day was like something from a medieval battle. We fought hand to hand, inch by inch, to prevent an invasion of the Capitol by a violent mob intent on subverting our democratic process. My fellow officers and I were committed to not letting any rioters breach the Capitol. It was a prolonged and desperate struggle. The rioters attempted to breach the Capitol were shouting, Trump, send us. Pick the right side. We want Trump. I vividly heard officers screaming in agony and pain just an arm length from me. I didn't know at that time but that was Officer Hodges. And he's here today to testify. 
I too was being crushed by the riders. I could feel my, myself losing oxygen and recall thinking to myself, this is how I'm going to die, defending this entrance. U.S. Capitol Police Sergeant Aquilino Gunnell testifying Tuesday before the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol. During his testimony, Gunnell referenced D.C. Metropolitan Police Department officer Daniel Hodges, who also testified at the hearing describing how Trump supporters almost crushed him to death. On my left was a man with a clear riot shield stolen during the assault. He slammed it against me and, with all the weight of the bodies pushing behind him, trapped me. My arms were pinned and effectively useless, trapped against either the shield on my left or the door frame on my right. With my posture granting me no functional strength or freedom of movement, I was effectively defenseless and gradually sustaining injury from the increasing pressure of the mob. Directly in front of me, a man seized the opportunity of my vulnerability, grabbed the front of my gas mask, and used it to beat my head against the door. He switched to pulling it off my head, the straps stretching against my skull and straining my neck. He never uttered any words I recognized, but opted instead for guttural screams. I remember him foaming at the mouth. He also put his cell phone in his mouth so that he had both hands free to assault me. Eventually, he succeeded in stripping away my gas mask, and a new rush of exposure to CS and OC spray hit me. The mob of terrorists were coordinating their efforts now, shouting, Heave! Ho! as they synchronized, pushing their weight forward, crushing me further against the metal doorframe. The man in front of me grabbed my baton that I still held in my hands, and in my current state, I was unable to retain my weapon. He bashed me in the head and face with it, rupturing my lip and adding additional injury to my skull. That was D.C. Metropolitan Police Department Officer Daniel Hodges. And this is Mike Fanone, who is also an officer with the D.C. Metropolitan Police. He suffered a heart attack after being beaten by Trump supporters. At some point during the fighting, I was dragged from the line of officers and into the crowd. I heard someone scream, I got one. As I was swarmed by a violent mob, they ripped off my badge they grabbed and stripped me of my radio. They seized ammunition that was secured to my body. They began to beat me with their fists and with what felt like hard metal objects. At one point, I came face to face with an attacker who repeatedly lunged for me and attempted to remove my firearm. I heard chanting from some in the crowd, get his gun and kill him with his own gun. I was aware enough to recognize I was at risk of being stripped of and killed with my own firearm. I was electrocuted again and again and again with a taser. I'm sure I was screaming, but I don't think I could even hear my own voice. My body camera captured the violence of the crowd directed toward me during those very frightening moments. It's an important part of the record for this committee's investigation, for the country's understanding of how I was assaulted and nearly killed as the mob attacked the Capitol that day. That's D.C. Metropolitan Police Department Officer Mike Fanone testifying Tuesday. U.S. Capitol Police Officer Harry Dunn describes the racist abuse he and other black officers encountered January 6th. More and more insurrectionists were pouring into the area by the Speaker's lobby near the rotunda, and some wearing MAGA hats and shirts that said Trump 2020. I told them to just leave the Capitol, and in response they yelled, no man, this is our house. President Trump invited us here. We're here to stop the steal.
Joe Biden is not the president. Nobody voted for Joe Biden. I'm a law enforcement officer, and I do my best to keep politics out of my job. But in this circumstance, I responded. Well, I voted for Joe Biden. Does my vote not count? Am I nobody? That prompted a torrent of racial epithets. One woman in a pink MAGA shirt yelled, you hear that, guys? This voted for Joe Biden. Then the crowd, perhaps around 20 people, joined in screaming, boo, No one had ever, ever called me a while wearing the uniform of a Capitol Police officer. In the days following the attempted insurrection, other black officers shared with me their own stories of racial abuse on January 6th. One officer told me he had never, and in his, his entire 40 years of life, been called a to his face, and that streak ended on January 6th. Yet another black officer later told me he had been cr confronted by insurrectionists in the Capitol who told him, put your gun down and we'll show you what kind of you really are. U.S. Capitol Police Officer Harry Dunn, as he continually uh, used the N-word, saying he had consciously decided to say what the people said to him, the rioters, that day. We're joined now by Derek Johnson, the president and CEO of the NAACP, which sued Donald Trump after the January 6th insurrection, citing the 1871 Ku Klux Klan Act. He's joining us from Jackson, Mississippi. Welcome back to Democracy Now!, Derek Johnson. Can you respond to the hearings yesterday, the significance of them, and then talk about your lawsuit? Well, powerful words. You heard individuals who were sworn to uphold and protect the law. And they did that on January 6th uh, in the face of a mob that was encouraged by then-President Trump and many others uh, to a, an, an attempted coup, an insurrection, a, a treasonous act. And what we heard yesterday was an account firsthand unvarnished by uh, those law enforcement officers. I commend them for their courage, their bravery, as this commission must get to the bottom of who was behind this and hold people accountable. And, and Derek Johnson, you have uh, tweeted that, quote, if it were black people storming the Capitol on January 6th, the walls would have been dripping in blood. Not only was it an attempted coup on our democracy, it was white supremacy in plain sight. Uh, could you uh, talk about that? When you think about the many things that have happened over the last several years, in fact, over the last several decades, where uh, uh, unprovoked violence have been put upon African-Americans across the country, uh, whether it was what we witnessed with Rodney King, the killing of Emmett Till, George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, uh, many of those incidents were done by law enforcement officers or encouraged or, and protected by law enforcement officers. That's about race. What we seen yesterday was a level of white supremacist privilege that individuals failed that they had the agency, the authority to go to the nation's capital to disrupt the peaceful transfer of, of power in a way in which they had they were entitled to certain rights. The fact that you had law enforcement officers from all backgrounds and walks of life 
who are being called and treated in that manner uh, is another example of white supremacy. Me as a black man cannot, will not go to a law enforcement an officer and, and take one's badge, takes one's ammunition, uh, hit with a stick and expect to survive to, to live because that's not our reality. And so that was a, an example of white supremacy in its most raw, ugliest form. And white supremacy and democracy cannot coexist. Those two things are in absolute contradiction of one another, and we must address it in this country once and for all. And after the January 6th insurrection, the NAACP sued Donald Trump and his personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani. Uh, the, your lawsuit claims that both men violated the Ku Klux Klan Act. Could you lay out what is that act and also what is your lawsuit saying? Well, after the conclusion of the Civil War and members of Congress was working to bring this country back together, uh, they realized that many members were being threatened when they went back to their home districts and, and being threatened as they carried out their duty. So that was an act adopted to protect members of Congress so they can carry out their duty to uphold and support the Constitution. And in that, the act, the Eighth Act of 1871, uh, they built in there protections against mob violence and racialized groups like what we've seen on January 6th, and they, it became known as the KKK Act because that was one of the leading white supremacist groups at the time in 1871. We filed uh, representing members of Congress who were simply carrying out their duty on January 6th. And this mob, at the encouragement of uh, President Trump, uh, we believe, Rudy Giuliani, the Proud Boys, the Representatives, and many others, uh, was seeking to stop the peaceful transfer of governance, stop individuals from carrying out their duties as, as, as members of Congress, and as a result, a direct violation of that act. We must hold people accountable. Domestic terrorism in this country has always been around white supremacist activity. And as an African-American who understand history as African-Americans who live in the South, we know if you allow domestic terrorism, white supremacist activity, to go unaccounted for, you, we are guaranteed to see more incidents of violence and disruption. Let's turn to Congressmember Jamie Raskin questioning Officer Daniel Hodges. Why do you call the attackers terrorists, and what do you think about our colleagues who think we should call them tourists? Well, if that's what American tourists are like, I can see why foreign countries don't like American tourists. <laughs> so, um, if you could comment overall on what's going to happen next and how this lawsuit will play in. Interestingly, the chair of the committee, Benny Thompson, was a part of the lawsuit, but had to drop out um, so that he could continue to chair this committee. But we want to make sure, and definitely Congressman Thompson wanted to make sure, there was no perceived or real conflicts of interest. The importance of this commission is profound. They have subpoena power. Uh, they would do what we should have already done. If this was a, a, a foreign terrorist act, we would have had com, uh, a commission already established. We would be getting to the bottom of it. We would be declaring war in some cases against those who were involved 
and to make sure it will never happen again. Domestically, we must do the same. We must investigate and allow that investigation to take us to where it leads us, hold all individuals accountable to ensure we root out this type of treasonous activity. We cannot promote ourselves globally to be the leading democracy in the world if we are doing domestically this type of harm. In, in our existence, whether it is changing the rules around voting in Texas or Georgia, whether it is trying to identify who should be considered legitimate citizens or not, but more importantly, if it's a scenario where, in this case, people are committing a treasonous act, we must stand united in this moment to ensure we protect our democracy. Derek Johnson, you're now president and CEO of the NAACP. You were formerly president of the NAACP Mississippi State Conference. I want to ask you about civil rights icon Bob Moses, who recently died at the age of 86 and did so much remarkable work in Mississippi in this country. Talk about how you knew Bob Moses, his history being shot at by the Ku Klux Klan, um, his being head of the, um, the field secretary of SNCC and then founder of the Algebra Project and what Taylor Branch called him the MLK of Mississippi. But in fact, uh, uh, Bob Moses was one of the most profound strategist leaders of the civil rights movement across the country, not Mississippi. Mississippi, as he would describe, was a theater in the civil rights movement. He used uh, the place of Mississippi to really amplify the national fight that we were in. He understood that the local fight had both national and global implications. And as a result of that, along with Fed and Lou Hamer, along with Aaron Henry, along with so many others, they organized Freedom Summer. They addressed the issue of a Democratic Party that had uh, uh, exclusionary primaries, and they broke that barriers. They created a space to create a uh, rural community health centers across the country that still exists today. He is, was, and, and in many ways is, if you read his literature, one of the most profound thought leaders of the civil rights movement. He put community interests above his ego. He understood that egocentric leadership fails us every time, but community-centric leadership is what will prevail, and we must stand in solidarity in saluting Bob Moses because he was such a profound leader. Uh, Derek Johnson, we wanted to play as you leave um, uh, Bob Moses himself, the former field secretary of SNCC, the former founder of the Algebra Project. This is from a documentary. Um, <clears throat> this is from a documentary uh, that uh, was about the freedom, um, a freedom summer. Um, well, we'll play a clip, a 2009 interview with Bob Moses on Democracy Now! Um, uh, later. But right now, a clip from the documentary film 1964, The Fight for a Right, where Bob Moses describes when he launched the 1964 Freedom Riders voter registration campaign in Mississippi. I put my weight behind the idea of the summer project, and we move forward from there. We hope to, to send into Mississippi this summer upwards of 1,000 teachers, ministers, lawyers, and students from all around the country. 
when we announced that we were going to have this summer project and Mississippi went bonkers and they started forming the League of White Racists, whatever they call themselves, right? You got editorials in the national paper, you know, attacking us as wanting to start another civil war. And this is another clip of Bob Moses on Democracy Now!, on Barack Obama's inauguration day, the first inauguration of the first African-American president, I asked Bob Moses' thoughts on the future of voting rights and education. In our country, I think we run sharecrop education. That is, an education that you can trace uh, when the judge asked me that question, because in the Delta of Mississippi, sharecroppers were assigned to do a certain kind of work, and so the idea was you only need a certain kind of education. So um, if we carry that forward into the information age, then we will have serfs in our cities, just like we had serfs in the Delta of Mississippi in the industrial era. And this is the huge challenge facing our country. I think what we need um, is a movement for our constitutional rights. We need a constitutional amendment, something which simply says every child in the country is a child of the country and is entitled to a quality public school education. That's Bob Moses in 2009. Bob Moses died in Florida at the age of 86. I also want to thank Derek Johnson, president and CEO of the NAACP, former state president of the NAACP Mississippi State Conference. Good morning. You're with Jacob and Fong on 3CR Breakfast. Welcome to those who just joined us. We just heard an excerpt from the Democracy Now! report on the recent U.S. Congress hearings into the January 6th Capitol Hill riots instigated by Trump and his supporters. The report looked at the conflict of interest involved in investigating white supremacist domestic terrorist activity and featured a look at activist Bob Moses, a key strategist in the U.S. civil rights movement who sadly passed away. You can catch the full report at www.democracynow.org. Um, and still to come, we've got some really good show coming up for you now. Um, hope everyone is staying safe and well in lockdown. Um, yeah, so uh, I, n- I understand that later on in the show you have a an interview lined up, Jacob. That is correct. So as as we all know, tomorrow night is census night. Um, so I hope everyone's getting on to their senses. Uh, but we've got an interview with Anna Brown, who is the CEO of Equality Australia, um, and we'll be discussing a bit about including LGBTQIA plus Australians into the census. That, I'm sure that will be a very interesting um, discussion um, that I know a lot of our listeners will, will find, um, yeah, very important. Um, but up next, uh, we've got psychologist Dr. Louise Hansen uh, as she shares her experience of living with psychosis and what's helped with her recovery. Please note this interview discusses mental health issues um, that may be triggering for some listeners. So if that's the case for you, please rejoin us in 15 minutes. For crisis support, you can call Lifeline on 131114. And Louise spoke to Susie from 3CR's Brainwave program. Hello, Louise, and welcome to Brainwaves. Thank you for the warm welcome. 
Louise, can you tell us a little bit about your early life, your childhood, your teams, your family, university, stuff like that? Um, okay, so I was born uh, on the Gold Coast and um, when, yeah, I don't, I don't have a lot of memory from my childhood um, other than being quite like timid and, um, yeah, anxious and a little bit depressed and things like that. I do remember at the school that we went to, um, we had a time capsule at Emmanuel College. We put this time capsule into the ground and I think when I was like, Oh, still under the age of 10, I said, um, when I grow up, I want to be a teacher and give everyone a good education. Oh. Um, so that was really cool that I ended up doing that. Um, but yeah, I don't remember that much about my childhood. And then we moved to Cairns um, when I was 12. I didn't really get especially good grades at school or anything like that. Um, but then when I went to university, that's when I fell in love with psychology. And by the time I got to fourth year, um, I ended up getting the best mark in Cairns and Townsville campus for JCU. Um, so I remember just crying because I wasn't an especially smart student at school, uh, which was probably because of trauma as well. Yeah. Yeah. So did you start by doing, like you just went straight into psychology, did you? No, I started doing uh, primary education because uh, yes. I didn't think I would be smart enough to do psychology. Um, and I, I went into education. I, I really loved it. Um, but then... Uh, and, and the practicals I loved. I loved working with the kids. But in terms of the education system, I didn't particularly, um, I don't know, I didn't feel comfortable with the, in, like the seriousness of the, in, of the education system and the strictness of it and things like that, which was probably another factor of my anxiety, uh, anxiety and psychosis that will unfold later, um, in the story. But psychology was just perfect for me. So in the, I think in the second, semester I, I saw that you could do uh, the joint degree and it was just one extra year mm. so instead of doing electives I chose to do psychology course. How old were you when things changed for you and what exactly happened? Um, I think what happened was I you know like psychology was really eye-opening for me to see um, yeah like how we work as human beings. I remember there were key things back then uh, that when I look back now that are really like topics today, but they weren't spoken about then, they were more like a conspiracy theory, for example. Um, yeah, like we learn about that stuff in psychology. So, for example, medication, you know, how common, commonly prescribed people are with, you know, things like depression or like that. And, and back then I remember as a kid, you know, thinking, well, why, why are we all taking medication? Why don't we change the system if there's something wrong with the system? Like why don't we do that instead? of just giving everybody medication but because the pharmaceutical revolution was quite new back then you know not a lot of people even knew about it to even have those conversations um whereas now 20 years later like you know we know we have this huge issue where we we as a society western world we have over medicated everybody i'm not against medication it's very important i will say um you know like it has its place and um there's a time and a place for medication but when when you've got so much of the population experiencing trauma and then 
the, you know, the different faces that trauma has, for example, like depression or anxiety or all these different things, um, and then everybody's taking medication for that, you, at some point you've got to ask the question, like, you know, is it is it the person that has a problem or is it the environment that they are in that is also, you know, contributing to that problem? So there were little things like that that would pop up along the way as I would learn psychology. Um, and then when I did my PhD, like I asked the question, where is emotion in the brain? And um, it was a fascinating topic. Like it, it started with the two hemispheres of the brain. So you got the left and right hemisphere. And um, yeah, there's, there's this sort of um, miss, a myth that like, you know, one hemisphere is like, you know, about emotion. Another hem- hemisphere is about language, for example. Um, we know that the hemispheres can be dominant uh, in one area more than the mm. other um, but it's not as black and white and simple as that mm. so um, basically my topic was to to demonstrate that things like even emotional processing is so dynamic and um, connected to everything mm. else as well like language and stuff like that you can't really separate these things even though mm. we try to and um and that, yeah, it wasn't as simple a question as we had thought it might be. And, and things like the type of instruments that we're using, like we used to use brain lesion studies and then we used, um, yeah, like visual field studies, all these different studies along the way. And now we use neuroimaging studies so we can have a look at what's going on um, from, you know, modern techniques. And, you know, essentially what we found was like there's so much confusion in this area um, it's very inconsistent, like, yeah. findings. So we know that the whole brain is working, um, you know, when, when things like, you know, motion and stuff like that are happening. But then even despite that, there were still these really obvious differences between one ear and the other. So, for example, a lady walked into a nightclub and she asked for a cigarette, right, to the left ear or the right ear. And people were twice as likely to say yes if you asked them in the right ear compared to the left ear Mm. and so what that actually means in terms of the two hemispheres is it's the opposite hemisphere yeah Mm. that's making that um type of processing so yeah so if it's so that's called a right ear advantage which means the opposite hemisphere is the left hemisphere and so they thought oh that's because language is you know predominantly in the left hemisphere so it was, that was my topic. It was really unusual uh, area research where even though we look at these brain studies now and we know, you know, it's really like it's happening throughout. It's not as simple as one hemisphere mm. throughout the other or sorry, one hemisphere mm. over the other. Um, but even despite that, we still get these really significant behavioral differences, if that makes sense. Yeah. Mm. Um, so anyway, that was my topic. And then um, – on a side note to that, I was sort of reading lots of, you know, um, you know, quotes and poems and, you know, spiritual pieces. And I'm not religious or anything like that. And it's okay if people are. Um, but yeah, I was just reading a lot of different things, lots of different types of relig- literature. And, um, and then, yeah, all of a sudden I kind of had this experience where emotion was not just in the brain, like it's throughout your whole body. And, you know, we do live in this universe that, you know, a lot of scientists believe is, um, you know, not uh, alive so much, so to speak. But then there's other people that argue that it is. We live in this living cosmos, right? Mm. And so it was really interesting to go on that journey to explore um 
yeah, I guess what in terms of emotion, like where is emotion in the brain? Well, hang on a second. It might not just be in the brain. It could be throughout our whole system. It might not just be in our system. It might be all around us. And that's kind of how the psychosis unfolded because if you look at, say, um, the best, the simplest example to give would be, you know, science stays inside the box. Yeah, it's very strict. Yeah. And you have to stay within the box. So when we look at things like mental health, you know, we look at what we call this um, biopsychosocial model. So we look at your your body, we look at your mind, and we look at social connection. And we and all these different things predict whether you can you know ha- have good mental health or you might become unwell. Like so, you, what's That's happening right. with, yeah. with your body? Um, you know, you might become unwell, uh, what's, or it might be genetic. Um, when we look at the mind, you know, like what type of thoughts do you have? Are they really critical negative thoughts or do you practice self-compassion? Um, and then social connection we now know is the number one, one of the biggest predictors of how long we live and how happy we are. So that's, that's science and, and the Western model and it stops there, right? But if you step outside of that, which is, um, you know, kind of what happened with my psychosis when you step outside the box, you then get to see all these other beautiful wisdom traditions, what they have done for, you know, tens of thousands of years that we, you know, have sort of ignored. And so the, the best example I can give for that is if you look at, say, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture, they actually extended that biopsychosocial model. And what they include is, you know, the body, the mind, social connection, which is the same, uh, but they also have um, they also have culture, and then they also have country, and then they also have spirituality, right? So that encompasses everything of what it means to be a human. And spirituality can be about God, but it doesn't need to be about God. So it's more about existence, yeah. And it's as it's as far as you can possibly go in terms of that, you know, what encompasses being human, because we don't know what is, you know what happens when we die. So in terms of my psychosis, this looking back now, I can really see how it happened because I was sort of grappling with all these different, you know, topics and, and different ways of seeing the world. And then I was also bound to, you know, like the scientific method because I was doing a PhD, I had to stay inside the box. But then at the same time, I could see there was so much outside of the box. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. And when you're saying as well about the biological aspects there's also intergenerational trauma and they're finding out uh, every show I do I seem to manage to get the expression gut bacteria into it because more and more um, knowledge is coming out of that area and the impacts of gut bacteria on your physical and mental health but um, with relation to your, your psychotic experience would you like to share with our listeners how that felt yeah, absolutely. So, so what happened was, I, you know, as I was exploring these ideas, like I, I had this kind of, in India, they call it like an awakening experience. Yeah. So, so yoga is the best example of this. So yoga means, um, union. Right. Yeah. And so, so a lot of people think they're just doing yoga for their body. But actually, if you go and look at like the, the intention of yoga, it's actually for your mind to, um, to obliterate your, what they call your individuality and, yeah. um, or, or what we would think of as our personality. Yes. Yeah? So yeah. what makes me separate from the whole, like separate to you, separate from the world. Um, 
and so and so that's why when when that happens which they call like a maybe like an awakening or a peak experience or enlightenment or um there's lots of different ways to explain it or awareness um so so when you have that experience you experience this union right uh, or mm. where you feel like this oneness where um it's you you and the universe are no longer like this separate Thing, which is which is such a beautiful experience because now it's not you against the whole universe, yeah. So yeah. when it's you against the entire universe, you will definitely lose that game, and that's why yeah. we feel anxiety, we feel depression, we feel overwhelmed, yeah, we feel terrified. Um, whereas yoga was intended for, um, I guess, you and the universe to be partners in crime, so to speak. So for me, like when I was sort of, you know. Um, dancing with all these different ideas for my PhD topic, I actually had this experience as well, which was crazy for me because it was not, nothing that I was introduced to as a child or, you know, in our culture growing up. So, um, like you, all you want is other people to have that experience because yeah. it's so beautiful. Like to to be connected, to feel like mm. you're connected to everything and everyone. Mm. You know, where you would never hurt a fly. You you would you don't want to fight with people. You just want to help everyone. You know, you just want to share everything. Like it's such a beautiful place to be, right? So so with that, that's all I wanted to do after I had that experience was to write about that for my PhD. Because remember my question was where is emotion? Yeah. That's right. Yes. So it was totally relevant. So I went back and I said to uh, my supervisors, look, I've just had this incredible experience and I really think this is important and I think that this is a problem that we've had in psychology. Like we've focused too much on um you know, like philosophy, which is thought, or behaviorism, which is our body, or um, the cognitive revolution, again, that's thinking, pharmaceutical revolution, that's medication, you know, and if you go, if you look throughout the history of psychology, it's, we were not, never allowed to study these things, like, or if we were, they were always put to the side. That was Dr. Louise Hansen speaking with Susie from Brainwaves. The full interview is available at 3cr.org.au forward slash brainwaves. Brainwaves is a 3CR radio program challenging the negative stereotypes of people living with mental illness and it airs Wednesdays from 5 to 5.30 p.m. If that segment has triggered anything for you and you need crisis support, the number to call is Lifeline on 131114. That's 131114. We'll be back right after this. A message from Victoria's community sector. I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID. To no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us. I really want to see my mum. I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on. To having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play. I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Let's get back to the good things. I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us. Please get vaccinated. A message from Victoria's community sector. A 3CR supporter. Welcome back to 3CR Breakfast. Um, It's nearly quarter to eight this morning and you're here with Jacob and Fung. 
Good morning. Thank you for joining us. Um, hope everyone's staying safe and well during the lockdown. How's your lockdown been? Um, yeah, pretty good. Um, I was saying to you before that over the weekend I did a deep clean of the house, um, and, which I had been putting off for a while, but it actually felt pretty good. Um, and then I spent the rest of the weekend watching TV, so I guess it kind of balances out. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. How yeah. about you? Yeah, similar similar to you actually. Mm. I I discovered that underneath my house there's this big room full of like old um clothes and furniture and and things. I live in this very dingy share house. I think <gasps> it's been a share house for about 10, 15 years now. So discovering Wait, did, you, did you always know that there was a room down there or you actually discovered that there was this cuz it sounds I'm I'm getting a little creeped out that you just discovered like a door. It was, it was a little bit Narnia vibes, not oh, going to lie. Oh, okay. yeah. That's quite, I, um, that sounds quite magical. I knew there was something down there. I just never had ventured past yeah. like the um, the cluster of furniture sitting in the doorway. So right. I decided to, to pull it out and yeah, I found lots of fun little things like trophies and people's Cute. old uni textbooks and, oh, wow. and clothes from like like ugly clothes from 2013 so that's when i knew i was like this is definitely artifacts from people that used to live here so i love that just like cobbling together and you know um an image of the people who used to live there i feel like that's quite fascinating yeah no it was um very very profound yeah and then what did you do with the stuff afterwards oh i just um put it on the side of the road, probably <laughs> organise a bit of a hard waste collection yeah, yeah. soon, I think. <laughs> well, if anyone wants some old trophies... Um... Come to my house. <laughs> yeah, we might, we might put that address on it. <laughs> no, please don't. <laughs> um, well, you would have just heard us play an announcement encouraging people to get vaccinated. Um, there uh, has been um, a drive-through vaccine clinic that's just opened in Melbourne, mm. which is... Um, which is exciting. Um, so it, it takes place at the former um, Bunnings um, on Barry Road in Melton, um, which is Melbourne's outer northwest, and it's Australia's first drive-through um, coronavirus vaccination clinic. Um, so if yeah, if you are interested, that's um, 149 Barry's Road in Melton. So you can drive through, um, and much like I guess getting a drive-through test. You can now get a drive-through COVID vaccination. Very exciting! Wow, mm. the the conveniences of modern capitalism meets uh, a public health response. How exciting! Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and then I guess um, on uh, continuing with vaccination news, it looks like Australia is um, planning to get some Moderna next month. Um, currently being considered by TGA uh, and Health Minister Greg Hunt that he expected it to be approved shortly. So um, I guess stay tuned. We'll see what happens in the next few weeks if if um, Moderna becomes one of the vaccinations that will be made available to people. Wonderful. And as we know, I think the Astra is well stocked. So mm-hmm. if you're eligible, you can probably go and, and get a vaccination if, if you so wish. Um, in other news, there was a uh, bill passed through the Senate last week um, calling on the government to release the list of businesses earning over $10 million who earned a JobKeeper to publish the amount of JobKeeper that they earned. Um, 
Now, this was put through by independents in the Senate, and it was voted down by the coalition in the House of Reps. Um, it's going to go back to the Senate today, according to the ABC. Um, and we're not too sure how Labor's going to vote on it. Um, but just for some perspective, the Independent Parliamentary Budget Office found that over 157,000 businesses increased their turnover between June and April 2020, um, and there was about $4.6 billion in taxpayer-funded wage subsidies wow. uh, meant to keep employees afloat, mm-hmm. uh, meant to keep people in their jobs so they could um, actually earn uh, an amount to keep their standard of living okay. So that's all gone to uh, business profits in that mm. in that time period. So, um, yeah, a little a little problematic, I think. Uh, so hopefully we'll see some more transparency and accountability for those businesses that have kept those profits when they didn't need to during that period of time. So um, I guess we'll see in the coming days how that pans out. In other news, 262 new cases in Sydney today. Um, sending love to all of our Sydney viewers. Hope you folks are coping all right. Um, and the Olympics is set to close with the US leading the medal tally. Um, China coming in second and Japan in third. And how exciting Australia is in sixth, which oh. I think is not too bad. Mm. Um, even though we were bagging the Olympics a few weeks ago, we were. I still think it's a good distraction from <laughs> some of the problems of the world happening right now. Um, but up next, we've got an exciting segment for you. Uh, Mar- Mike Rothschild on the Anon. So QAnon expert Mike Rothschild joins 3CR's Yeah Na Pasaran team to discuss his new book, The Storm Is Upon Us. Thanks for joining us, Mike. Thank you for having me. When did you first realize that QAnon was a problem? (laughs) Well, early on, I kind of thought it was a joke. Uh, I started seeing these tweets in about uh, maybe January of 2018, so just a few months after the first Q drops, talking about how John McCain and Hillary Clinton were wearing orthopedic walking boots, not because they'd injured their feet like the rest of us mere mortals, but because they had secretly been arrested in a, in a purge called the Storm, and the walking boots were, were to hide their ankle tracking bracelets. I thought that was amazing, and I needed to just run down every single aspect of that whole conspiracy theory that I could. But pretty early on, I realized that it had some very similar tenets to these affinity frauds that I'd written about, these things I talk about in the book, the Iraqi dinar scam, this thing called Nasara. These are these long-running, intel-driven scams where there's a guru at the center of it who has this secret knowledge of a great event that's about to happen, and the guru is the only one who has access to the information, and they are sharing it with you, you know, for a price, of course, so that you can invest in whatever they're selling, or you can buy whatever this worthless currency is, and you too can be rich, and everything will be great. QAnon had all of the the intel and all of the secret knowledge, but it wasn't about a great financial windfall. It was about how good you would feel when your enemies were brought to justice and hanged for their crimes. And I realized that that was really troubling, certainly because of the violence, but also because it was something that you could keep going without any kind of illegality. These things like the Dinar scam and Nasara, they're basically frauds. I mean, they, they revolve around selling worthless investments. And a lot of people involved in Nasara and the Dinar have gone to prison. But with QAnon, you could keep this going forever. And all you're doing is just posting crap in code on 4chan. 
you're not doing anything illegal. So that's when I really started to get a little bit freaked out by it. I guess they were going along without doing anything illegal until uh, they're talking about hanging all of their enemies turned to showing up at uh, the Capitol with rope. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's there's only so long that you can talk about the apocalypse before you get sick of waiting around for it. But one of the things that really distinguished QAnon from a lot of these other things was that this very quickly jumped into the real world. Uh, a lot of these other things, you know, like Nasara, that was a very, very small group of people online. They, they were kind of outsized in their volume, but they everything they did stayed online, and they didn't really get involved in, in day-to-day stuff. But with QAnon, you very quickly, within about a year of the drops first appearing, you started to have crimes. You had the incident on Hoover Dam where this guy got into his homemade armored truck with 900 rounds of ammunition and two firearms and drove to Hoover Dam and set up a blockade, basically, and was demanding that Donald Trump release the real Inspector General report. That was based on a Q-drop about a supposedly real, unredacted Inspector General report of the intelligence community that would blow the lid off of the FBI's corruption and how the deep state had tried to keep Trump from winning the presidency and how the leakers were damaging him and all of this was going to come out. And this guy was asking Trump to do this based on a Q-drop. Then you, you started to have murders. You started to have child kidnappings. This wasn't just people shoveling money into a worthless investment. This was people grabbing their firearms and killing One of the sort of weirder crimes was the, the killing of the mob boss. I think that uh, QAnon, for the people that are affected by it, it can be just perplexing when you're on the outside and you don't know what's going on. Do, just as an aside, do you have any idea what the mafia made of that incident? I don't know. You know, I'm I'm not a mafia watcher. And, you know, the, the, the mafia is so far past its glory days that I'm sure that they were just happy that somebody was writing about them. But this guy, Frank Cowley, who was shot dead, he was very under the radar. I'd never heard of him. I, you know, I, you know, he wasn't like a John Gotti type. This, this was not a flamboyant guy. This was just somebody who lived on Staten Island and was, you know, involved in some under the radar illegal activities. He wasn't part of the deep state. You know, Trump had no link to him, but this guy who shot and killed him, uh, Anthony Camello, became obsessed with the idea of enacting citizens' arrests against the deep state. And apparently he had already tried to do one to Maxine Waters, who's a congresswoman from California. That really never went anywhere. He talked about, I think, maybe trying to arrest some other people. But he, he ran his car into Frank Cowley's parked car. To arrest him. And then, of course, you know, Kali starts yelling at him and he gets shot in the face for his trouble. But this really came out of nowhere. Q never talked about the mafia. This, this wasn't something that people connected with this world. It was very out of left field. And I think the, that's why it got so much attention. Q would appear to be many things to many different people. One of the questions you ask in the book is how best to understand it. Is it a movement, a cult? Uh, a conspiracy theory, and so on. I was wondering if you could talk about uh, the different approaches you took to addressing the question of Q and arriving at a better understanding of it. Sure. I really tried to look at QAnon as a bunch of different parts that add up to something different for all of the people who believe it. It absolutely has elements of a cult to it, but I don't think it's quite 
so easy to just say it's a cult and write off all of the people who believe it. You know, even the cult experts I talked to for the book were really confused on what exactly this was. It certainly has the sort of in-group versus out-group dynamic of a cult. It has the you know fear of the outside world that a cult has, but it doesn't have a charismatic leader. It doesn't have that figure at the very top whose word is bond. You know, Q would would make drops where they would say things like disinformation is necessary. I'm going to lie to you, essentially, is what Q was saying. I'm going to lie to you, and it's okay. It's part of this this war that we're fighting together. With Q, it was always about togetherness. It wasn't I am your leader. It was we are all our own leaders. We are all this movement. We are Q together. So in that sense, it's not so much a cult, even though it really looks like it. It has aspects of being a new religion, but it doesn't really you know, give you a deity to worship. It's very evangelical Christian in that way. It feels like a mass movement, but it's very fragmented. It has no, there's no unity in it. A lot of QAnon believers will argue with each other about, you know, doctrine and about who's making money off of it. It's very fragmented. And what I wanted to do was kind of track down where all of those parts came from and how they all fit together. And it's still really difficult to give a really comprehensive answer to what Q is, because what Q is really depends on what you want out of it. In terms of its status as a cult and, I guess, religiosity in the United States in particular, it seems that um, there's a substantial base for support among uh, evangelical Republicans and others with regards to Q. What do you, in terms of its cultish nature or its um, appeal to people of uh, religious faith, what do you think that says about Q and, and QAnon? I think it says that the person who started writing the drops, while having no real plan for it, really understood the tropes of evangelical culture and really understood how to get through to these people in a way that I think a lot of conservatives don't. But I think Donald Trump really did understand. You know, you can say a lot about Trump, but he knew how to talk to people. He knew what to say to get through to the audience that he was trying to bring over to his particular brand of conservatism. So, you know, Q would would sort of throw out these these ridiculous accusations, but say things like, well, you know, you need to find out for yourself. You need to do your research. So it wasn't like they were a, a God figure telling you what to do. It was very much of a we're in this together. We are a community. We're going to solve these problems ourselves and we're going to do it without the government. We're going to do it without the mass media because they're all infiltrated by the deep state. We are our own community. And there is that kind of walled off nature that you, I think you've seen a lot of evangelical communities of like they don't understand us. You know, they deride our way of life. They mock us. They want to cancel us is what you would say now. He was very, very good at tapping into that. Speaking of Donald Trump, uh, well, I guess this whole thing is speaking of Donald Trump, but, uh, you know, in the age of the polished politician, it sort of seems hard to conceive of uh, someone, a politician, saying anything that hasn't, you know, been through five focus groups and ten media advisors. It was sort of controversial when Donald Trump addressed the QAnon question. I was wondering, do you think that he knew what he was talking about when he said the things that he said about Q? <laughs> you know, I, I never try to assume that Donald Trump knows anything about anything because I feel like that always leads to disappointment. But I do think that by that point, Trump knew what this was. He knew what these people believed. I don't know how much of that he found on his own. I don't know how much of that was put in front of him by his social media team. I think his his inner circle knew what this was very early on, and they knew clearly how to exploit it, what to say, you know, what to post on social media, what would rile these people up and feed their beliefs 
that there was this secret war going on. And part of this secret war was the comms being exchanged by the deep state using, you know, pictures of dogs and corn and codes. And so that, you know, you started having people talking about the codes and Trump's typos on Twitter. And so I think that his inner circle really did understand it. And I think eventually they kind of told Trump, well, here's what you need to know about this. These people love you. They worship you. This is what you believe. And I'm sure there was something in his head that went like, oh, they want to fight pedophiles. Those are my people. I, I want to fight pedophiles. I mean, never mind that that's nonsense. He, he really, I think, understood that the, the mythology to him meant nothing, but they loved him. And so that was all. That On a similar thread, uh, Michael Flynn embraced the QAnon meme much more thoroughly do you think that he was fully aware of what he was getting into when he jumped in and could you speak a little bit about you know what his involvement was sure michael flynn is a revered figure in QAnon. he is he is worshipped with a reverence that really is only reserved for q and god and trump they think he is a hero who faked his own crimes so that he could be fake arrested by the FBI and go undercover in the Mueller investigation to root out all of the corruption and all of the evil there and then that all of it would be exposed and that Flynn would be exonerated. Well, everybody kind of knew that Flynn was going to be exonerated, not because he had done nothing wrong. He quite clearly did something wrong, but because Trump was going to pardon him. You know, everybody kind of knew that was coming and we all were prepared for it. But I think in terms of does Flynn think this is real, you know, I always hesitate to to take a guess as to whether somebody thinks Q is real or not. I think a lot of people do think it's real. But I think what Flynn really found is that he found a group of people who would financially support him. And I think that's a really important thing to think about with any influential Republican who gets involved with QAnon. There is always a financial aspect to it. Michael Flynn had five million dollars in legal bills he had to sell his house to pay his lawyers now trump wasn't paying for his lawyers trump you know pardoned him at the end but there was no you know trump wasn't giving flynn the reward that flynn felt like he deserved so he found these QAnon people who would buy his merchandise who would pay to see him speak at QAnon events we hope you enjoyed that snippet um to hear the full interview with mike rothschild head over to the yeah Passaran page at 3cr.org.au forward slash Yenar Passaran. Yenar Passaran is on Thursdays uh, from 4.30 to 5pm. Thanks, Fung. So up next, we're going to be chatting a bit about the Australian Census. So as we know, every five years, the Australian Bureau of Statistics collects key demographic, social and economic information about Australia's population. And this year, there is renewed calls for the Census to include more accurate data about LGBTQIA plus Australians to better inform health and well-being sectors. And at the forefront of these calls is Equality Australia CEO Anna Brown, who joins us in the studio today. Anna, thanks for joining us. Good morning, Jacob. Good morning. So can you tell us a bit about uh, what is Equality Australia and what kind of work do you do? Uh, we're a national LGBTQ plus human rights organisation, so... We're built from the Marriage Equality Yes campaign and we work uh, with and for LGBTQ plus communities across the country for equality and to end discrimination. Yeah, sounds fantastic. And I know you've been doing a bit of work around the census this year. Um, what can we expect the census to ask on gender and sexuality? Yeah, well, we have um, at the moment question, a question on sex. Uh, 
And if you're a same-sex couple living with your partner, your relationship will be recorded. But if you're a single um, gay, lesbian or bi-plus person, or if you're not living with your partner, then there's no way that your sexual orientation can be recorded in the census. And likewise for trans women and trans men, because there's no question about gender identity or gender um, that should accompany a question with, with sex assigned at birth, there's, the trans people will large, largely remain invisible as well. I see. So not a lot of data recorded on, on gender and sexuality. So what changes would you like to see to better include LGBTQIA plus Australians in the census? Sure, we'd like to see uh, a question on sexual orientation in the same way that the UK and New Zealand have moved towards collecting this sort of data. We know that ABS have tested the inclusion of this question in the census. We'd like to be um, able to record sexual orientation and then um, making sure that there's a question about sex assigned at birth and then gender. So you can reflect any changes in people's gender identity over time, uh, which means that trans people um, will be able to be included as well. Now, intersex advocates would like to also see an additional question on uh, variations in sex characteristics, and they're people born um, with physical sex characteristics that don't fit the stereotypical male and female norms, uh, and they'd like to have separate question asking about that. Definitely. Very, very important questions. Can you tell us a bit about why these changes are so significant for the community and, and what it actually means for, for queer and gender diverse people? Well, um, until you're counted, you remain invisible in government decisions about where resources should be dedicated and planning of program delivery across the country. So when it comes to aged care or homelessness services or um, mental health services, and that's particularly important when you consider the mental and general health disparities experienced by LGBTQ plus populations, um, the government is flying blind when it comes to information about where we live and uh, where those services are needed. So particularly when you consider, for instance, that you know LGBTQ plus young people attempt suicide at shockingly high rates. Um, we really absolutely need this data to make sure that we're dealing with this crisis in in the in some of the most vulnerable in our country. Definitely, and I know um, you mentioned that uh, LGBTQIA plus young people are at higher risk of suicide rates. Are there any other sections of the community facing specific issues that you think uh, better census data would help inform better solutions? Absolutely. I mean, well, first of all, when you unpack those the population groups, um, trans people, um, from the data that we do have, we know that trans people have really um, acute mental health issues. One in two trans young people have attempted suicide. So probably the worst mental health of any population group in, in the country. Um, mm. But then when you look at other issues like homelessness, um, we, we, we know from the limited data we do have that there's shocking rates of homelessness amongst our youth and, uh, I mean, LGBTQ plus young people. And, and then when you look at general health conditions, and the, the census will be recording information about uh, chronic health conditions, um, the data we have on lesbians, for example, um, says that they have high rates of chronic 
health conditions, high rates of addiction to smoking and alcohol. Um, all this information would help us better understand the needs of our communities so we can actually meet them. Definitely, yes. So um, I know Equality Australia is doing a lot of work on counter-sin. Can you give us some insight into some of the other campaigns you're working on at the moment? Sure. Um, I mean, before we move on, I might just encourage listeners at home to sign the petition if they haven't already, if you don't mind, Jacob, mm-hmm. just to, to make sure that, that we are counted in. Um, we've got the petition at www.equalityaustralia.org.au forward slash count us in and make sure that Minister Suka hears from you about the importance of collecting that data. Uh, then, um, sadly, we we are still fighting attempts to wind back our rights, and we're really concerned about the proposed religious discrimination bill uh, that the federal government has signalled that it will be introducing later this year. Now, the last version of that bill contained really concerning provisions that were actually quite dangerous for our communities, but also for people with disabilities, women, and ironically, people of faith themselves. Now, we're yet to see what the next version of the bill will look like, but we're really concerned and we need to make sure that our community mobilises again and tells the government that equality didn't come at a price in 2017, that um, when the country stood up for LGBTQ plus people and voted yes, that was unequivocal and we can't keep... um, you know, persisting with these efforts to wind our rights, but also other communities' rights backwards. Mm, definitely. Um, and you mentioned before there's there's a petition going around uh, for Count Us In. What are some other ways our listeners can support all the great work you're doing at Equality Australia? Oh, thanks, Jacob. Uh, well, first of all, um, sign up to our mailing list, and if you do sign the petition, you you'll um, then receive emails about our other campaigns and issues as well and of course if you're really um if you're able to we'd always love when people want to donate uh, to support our cause we don't receive government funding like other organizations do about 95 percent of our funding comes from non from private donations from people out there who who want to make sure that someone uh standing up and providing that voice for the lgbti community to government Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Anna. I think that was some great insight um, into the the problem with the census. I really liked your point. The government is flying blind when it comes to LGBTQIA plus Australians. So um, thanks so much for your time and advocacy on this issue. Thanks, Jacob. Have a wonderful day. You too. Uh, So up next, we've got a section on protecting our forests from 3CR's city limits. Stu Jordan from the Bob Brown Foundation spoke to Meg and the city limits team about the campaign to save the Takanya or the Tarkeen rainforest from a proposed tailings dam, which could destroy the rainforest and compromise the cultural heritage landscape. Thanks for joining us, Scott. Uh, Good morning. Good morning. How are you today? Good, good. It's it's very wet down here, so I'm, I'm pleased to be indoors. <laughs> well, the rainforest in Tasmania can be beautiful in the in the wet. I'm I'm a Tasmanian myself, born um, and raised in Hobart, so I've had a little bit of time in the forest, and it's really wonderful. Sometimes in the rain, isn't it? Look, it is. It's sometimes at its best in the rain, provided you you're dry and warm, and you can um, yeah uh, go out and experience it. But, yeah, uh, yeah. It's, it's truly a beautiful place. 
And um, so maybe you could start by, for any of our listeners who don't know what or where the Tarkine is, giving us an idea of that. Well, look, the Tarkine's an area in northwest Tasmania. Um, it makes up around half a million hectares of, of area that, that has been verified as having both national heritage and world heritage values. Um, about a bit over a third of the Tarkine is, is cool temperate rainforest, and it's in fact, the, the largest temperate rainforest left in Australia and one of the last remaining in the world. And so it, it's incredibly important for that aspect, but also uh, has huge areas of heathland and, and button grass um, moving out towards the coastal terrain where we have um, significant areas of Aboriginal heritage. And in fact, what the Australian Heritage Council uh, suggests is the, the largest concentrations of, of Aboriginal heritage sites in the country, and so um, it has has a whole range of values, and is home to over sixty rare, threatened, and endangered species. Mm, a really important place, especially for the uh, Aboriginal cultural heritage, as well as you say. Um, and so, what is what's proposed for this area? Well, look, unfortunately, we've been under a whole range of threats for a long period. Those sites on the coast have been at risk from. Um, four-wheel drive activity and, and um, we've had a state government that's only just um, started making the right noises about restricting four-wheel drive access on the coastal areas. Um, having, having planned to reverse the decision of a previous government to reopen those areas to four-wheel drive, we've had the logging threat over many years where um, our state government logging agency is still progressing with logging these ancient rainforests um, mostly for wood chip, in fact, mm-hmm. um, and, and seeing those areas um, permanently destroyed. The rainforests don't recover from that sort of logging. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're, we're, of course, seeing the, um, the the threat from mining companies who, who it seems every time, you know, every decade or so, when the, there's a short-term spike in the iron ore prices or the tin prices, the mining companies all line up ready to start tearing holes in those rainforest areas. Mm. And and what we're faced with right now is a company that has a mine outside of the Tarkine um, on the southern side of the Pyman River but, but has not had any conflict with the conservation movement and um, you know, could, could have got about its, its processes completely unhindered. Mm. Uh, but it's chosen to plan its new tailing stand on the northern side of the Pyman River inside the Tarkine rainforest and it wants to put a 140-hectare um, toxic heavy metals tailing stand um, supported by another 145 hectares of infrastructure um, in that beautiful rainforest area of the Tarkine. And um, we find that's completely unacceptable. And, and we've been out there, uh, firstly, for 143 days over the, um, the summer where we held out the loggers and the, and the, um, the mining company. Mm. And... Then police arrived and they raided the camp and they moved everybody along and, and made some arrests. And and since then, uh, we, we spent the next um, two months hitting them every day where we would have people turn up on the site, lock themselves to machines or lock themselves to gates or, or prevent access to the site. And after 71 arrests and 400 people participating in those protests, We've, we've earned ourselves a, a reprieve. And mm. so for the moment, the machines are off the site, but the threat hasn't gone away. 
So, I mean, yeah, that's that's great effort um, from all of the activists there. Um, and it's just another example of how powerful direct action can be. Um, why do you think the uh, company has chosen to pursue this within the Tarkine? Well, I think the simple question is, is it it's a cheaper answer? Right. Um, tailing stems have been, I guess, the, the staple of mining projects over the 20th century, where uh, after you've removed all of the, the metals from the, the ore that's been brought to the surface, um, you're left with a sulphide deposit, which is, um, when combined with the oxygen in the air, starts to form sulfuric acid. And so they, they put these um, sulphide heavy metals tailings into a, a tailings dam, which, when, when covered in, in a couple of metres of water, um, reduces the speed of that, that chemical process to form the sulfuric acid. And, and unfortunately, what we're left with, though, is a, a huge... Um, damaged landscape that's full of this toxic uh, material, which doesn't doesn't entirely prevent the acidification. It just slows it somewhat. And so often what we're left with is long after the mine's gone, we're left with this this ongoing process of acidification that's leaching out into the surrounding environment. Yeah. World's best practice now is to move to a a different process, which which filter presses the um, the tailings into a a, a dry cake. And then they combine that with concrete to refill the voids left from previous mining, the underground voids. Mm. And so this is the process that's available to them. Um, even if they want to go with the old dirty process, mm. there is other sites outside of the Tarkine that, that are available to them. But the simple answer is here, they've done the numbers and it's, it's cheaper to pipe this stuff across the Pyman River and dump it into a rainforest, mm. which unfortunately our, our state government is going to give them free access to yeah, and the Tarkine is a. I think I've, people might assume that a lot of Tasmania is. Uh, I I know you know the term is thrown around by logging and mining companies. This idea of a lot of Tasmania being locked up, in in air quotes. Um, and the Tarkine is not part of the World Heritage Area, is it? It's a kind of a mixed use um, uh, forest. Is that right? Yeah, unfortunately, that's that. Totally true. And while there's parts of the Tarkine that have been added to various reserves under the state reserve system here, yeah. um, the majority of those reserves still allow for logging and mining. Mm. And so they're, they're reserves by name, but not, not by um, function. And so our campaign has been to see this area um, put into a, a national park, um, to have the nomination made to, to see this area finally World Heritage listed as it so you know, deeply deserves. Mm -hmm. and, and our third aim, of course, is to have this area return to Aboriginal ownership. Mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, unfortunately, we, we do come up against that argument in the community that so much of Tasmania is locked up. And um, I guess I, I bristle whenever I hear that <laughs> argument because too, um, yeah. national parks aren't locked up. National parks are places where you can take your kids and your mm -hmm. grandkids. Um, what's locked up is the areas behind the logging gates and the mining gates that the public never gets to see mm. and they don't get to see the destruction that's going on to their wild and special place. So true. And um sounds like the community has really um, mobilised to respond to this threat. Um, what Now that there's a bit of a reprieve, what kind of things are you planning next and, and how might people be able to get involved? Well, look, right now we've got people camped 
in the middle of the area that, that would be the, the sailing stand. Right. Um, we've got a tree sit in place and we've got a ground crew on the ground conducting uh, citizen science out in mm. that area um, to make sure that the you know, values of this area are well documented and that we're not forced to rely on the on the company's um, consultants mm. um, who, who to date have been largely dismissive of any environmental values on the site. Um, we've been recording the endangered um, mask owl um, of an evening with, with sound recorders. We've been um, you know, uh, putting out fauna cameras and, and tracking Tasmanian devil populations, spotted tail quail populations and, and doing scat surveys. Um, we'll let you go in a minute, Scott, but I'm just wondering if you had anything else that you might be able to add to the um, the points that you made about um, Aboriginal ownership and um, the cultural heritage values of the site, if there's anything you can say about your uh, work with the um, Tasmanian Aboriginal community on this issue. Yeah, look, our, our partnership with the Tasmanian Aboriginal community, particularly through the Tasmanian Aboriginal Centre mm. and the Tasmanian Aboriginal Land Council, has been really important part of our campaign. Um, this area is is of great importance to the the Aboriginal people in Tasmania, and um, our our view is that it you know, it was looked after for over forty thousand years by the Aboriginal people of this island, and um, the best best hands to be looking after it into the future are, are back with with those Aboriginal owners, and so. Um, our foundation and, and many of our allies have made commitments that we, you know, we want to see this area return to Aboriginal ownership, and um, we've partnered with the Aboriginal community over the last decade to um, progress that that campaign. Mm. Could be a really um, important site for understanding Tasmanian Aboriginal culture um, as it as it continues and ha- as it has been in the past. And um, and lastly, on that note, and the idea of um, you said before um, reclaiming that forest space and uh, Zeb and I were talking at the top of the show about how a lot of these um, activities, extractive activities happen out of sight, out of mind. Um, any advice for anyone listening, perhaps um, Melbourne listeners or Victorian listeners who want to visit this part of uh, Tasmania and, um, and get to know it better? Any advice for them? Look, my first bit of advice is do it. <laughs> the, um, the borders reopen. Um, you, you should come down and see this amazing place. Um, for, for listeners in Melbourne, this, this is as much your rainforest as it is ours. Um, you can fly from Melbourne to the, the Burnie Airport in an hour and another hour in a hire car and you're in the middle of the beautiful rainforest. And so, you know, I like to say the Tarkite, it's two hours from Melbourne. Um, <laughs> it's closer to Melbourne than it is to the Hobart. Um, True. Um, yeah, definitely come down and see it and see these amazing coastal areas full of Aboriginal heritage, see the rainforest and the, and the richness of the life that's existing in those. Um, but in the meantime, while you're in lockdown, there's things you can do to help. You, know, um, you can contact your local federal MP um, and your state senators and, and tell them that, that this area should be protected as a uh, World Heritage Area and that you want them as your representative to be speaking in the Parliament for a, a nomination for World Heritage for the Tarkine. Yes. And, and you know, sometimes people get a little bit intimidated by the science and the economics and, and those arguments. And at the end of the day, your local MP works for you. Um, you just need to be telling them that as your voice in that Parliament, you want them speaking um, 
for protection of the tagline. And um, you know, and if enough people make those um, representations to their local members, then then that voice will be heard in the parliament. Great. Thank you so much for that. It's good to feel like there's something that can be done. And I, I personally hope to be there next time I'm in Tassie. So thanks for joining us today, Scott. No worries. Thank you. That was Stu uh, Jordan speaking there with Meg from City Limits. For more info on the campaign to save the Takanya Tarkin rainforest, head over to the Bob Brown Foundation at bobbrown.org.au. For more urban environment news and stories, visit 3cr.org.au forward slash city limits or tune in every Wednesday from 9am here on 3CR. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. Great show today. Um, what did we have on today's show? We uh, you interviewed um, Anna from Equality. Australia. Yeah, yeah. I had a great interview with Anna Brown from Equality Australia. If you want to learn more about some of the stuff we were talking about with the Count Us In campaign, you can visit equalityaustralia.org.au forward slash count us in and there's a nice uh, petition there to sign as well to include lgbtq plus people in the 2026 census yes and remember if you haven't done so i think it's tomorrow night, yeah, tomorrow night. yes exactly so get your census done um we also heard uh from D- uh, dr louise hansen on brainwaves um as well as mike rothschild QAnon expert on yena um pasaran um and we just listened to a segment from city limits so um yeah lots to lots to listen to on today's show definitely um and what are you doing for the rest of today um, well, I have a day off, which I guess isn't that exciting since we're all at home in lockdown. <laughs> yes. Um, so, I don't know. Do you have any suggestions? What, what could I do today? Maybe you could bake yourself a really nice cake. <laughs> my oven, my <laughs> oven is broken. Oh, <laughs> maybe, um, I don't know then. Cook, cook yourself some toast, <laughs> <laughs> nice cheese toasty on the, the stove. <laughs> That's true. Maybe, yeah, maybe I'll, maybe I'll do a bit of cooking. How about you, Jacob? What have you got on today? I have some very exciting plans. I'm, I'm getting my first uh, AstraZeneca jab. Congratulations. Today. Thank you. So, 
yeah, I'm excited to get myself vaccinated, protect against the virus. Yes. Um, yeah, if anyone is interested in getting vaccinated, um, I think you can find a map of uh, a lot of the walk-in um, centres on the VicGov website. Um, and I think if you just Google vaccination centre near me and um, type in your address, you should be able to find some centres as well. And remember, if you live near Melton, they've got a new drive-through um, vaccination centre. Very so exciting. If that suits you. Yeah. Um, check that out. Um, but otherwise, up next, we've got women on the line. Um, and then, yeah, stay tuned um, tomorrow for Tuesday breakfast um, and breakfast every other day. <laughs> Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining us this morning. I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. And we'll see you again next week from 7 until 8.30 a.m. every Monday. This is Jacob. And Fung. Bye. Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.